the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Changemakers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. We all lose people and experiences we hold dear. Nothing we love lasts forever. Grieving is a part of being human. Grief can hit us quickly like a bolt of lightning, or it can silently creep up on us before we even know we're in its grip. Many of us try to deny what we're feeling in an attempt to stay positive or stop the pain. According to today's guest, Claire B. Willis, to heal from loss, we cannot disassociate or refuse to feel the depth of our despair. She contends that genuine grieving requires us to be present with the anguish and to be open to the pain of our heartbreak and even embrace our sadness. Claire is a clinical social worker who has been working in the fields of oncology and bereavement for more than 20 years. She is the co-author of Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. Welcome, Claire. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. I'm so happy to be here. So, Claire, as I said in the introduction, we all grieve a loss at one time or another. For the sake of this conversation, what do you mean when you use the word grief? Um, Grief is a, a natural response to a loss of any kind. It applies to any and everything, as big and as large as any loss could be. So it's just a natural response. And I want to emphasize natural because I think so often people have judgments about grief. And so I just want to normalize it and universalize it Mm -hmm. throughout the conversation we have today. If grief is a natural part of living, how does it manifest in our lives? Well, there's a lot of ways. I think one of the common misconceptions about grief is that grief expresses itself through sorrow, sadness, despair, hopelessness. But actually, grief has as many different expressions almost as there are people. So for some people, grief, in fact, for a lot of people, grief comes across as anger or rage. It can be expressed as impatience, irritability, and regret. Regret's a big one. And it even can have positive uh, feelings connected to it, like gratitude. Gratitude is a common one that goes with grief. I hear people say, "I'm, despite how sad I am, I'm so grateful I was able to love this person for as long as I was able to love them. And so I think it's important because oftentimes in families, what happens is that people grieve differently. And because they're grieving differently, people think other members of the family are grieving and it creates a lot of conflict. It also can um, express itself cognitively in, in our thinking. Our thinking becomes less clear. We're often confused. We're easily overwhelmed. We often, many people can't focus at all. People find it hard to read and concentrate. Um, We get forgetful. In behaviorally, often people will do things. They'll overeat. They'll undereat. They'll overexercise. They're underexercise. They'll overwork. They'll underwork. So the grief has a lot of expressions behaviorally. And I think especially in the time when people have a traumatic loss, that people can have their spirituality or their religion um, shattered by not being able to understand why this thing has happened. And I think it often accompanies traumatic losses, the spiritual crisis and the, the expression of lack of faith or shattered faith. You know, it, it's so interesting, all of the things that you just described, because I, I'm sure many people 
don't associate some of those things with grieving. You know, we have this idea that we go through loss and then, you know, it's kind of like a one and done thing. We should be done. We should move on right. and it's it's over. I, I remember, you know, about a little over 10 years ago, at the start of all the work I'm doing now, it, this all resulted really from traumatic loss. And in a period of six months, my 23-year marriage ended, my mother died, my sister died, and my oldest son left for college. And so it was like one day I had this particular wow. life, and, and the next it was gone. And, you know, as time passed, in when when you go through this loss in the early stages, people are around you. But as time passes, you you start to get this feeling, well, you know, people don't really want to hear it anymore. It's old news. And so how do we navigate those feelings we may be having about sharing our pain with others? That's a really interesting question you're asking, because I think it touches on a few things here. One is that when we lose someone we love or you had what I would call a pileup of losses, you had a bunch of them. Um, what happens is that there are what they call in the literature secondary losses. I like the word invisible better. But for instance, when you lose a partner, whether it's through divorce or separation or death, there are losses that accompany that loss that are called secondary, but they're actually not secondary, often in in impact. In, in, In impact, they can actually be primary. So for instance, the other night in my bereavement group, someone said, you know, I don't miss my partner so much as I miss being part of a couple. And then she talked about how friends weren't calling. Other couples would call from Monday to Thursday, but no one called on the weekend. People often experience other losses, such as the, a loss of economic stability, the loss of a co-parent, the loss of someone with whom they were planning future dreams. Some people lose their homes and have to move. So that when someone dies or there's a change that results in a big loss, there are so many tendrils and other aspects of our life that this also touches So I think that's an important thing just to identify and name because often people are overwhelmed with grief and it's way more than the loss of the person. It's that and many other losses as well. Well, as you were saying that, I was thinking just with my divorce alone, it was not just the loss of my husband, but the loss of his entire family. People that were like brothers and sisters and cousins all of a sudden were gone as well. So you're right. It's not just the one person. It's the dreams. And then it's all those other people that are no longer part of your life as well. That's right. That's right. There are multiple levels of losses. One of the things that happens is people will hang out initially in the face of a loss, but people return to their lives far faster than the person who's grieving is ready for that to happen. And I think often the second year of grief in the face of a loss is harder than the first year, or especially in the face of a death, I should say, because the first year is taken up with a lot of material planning of the closing of the life, the funeral, all of that. And often it's not until the second year that people begin to grasp what's happened because when we're coping with a loss, we can't deal with it. And when we're dealing with a loss, we can't cope. So we have to choose between coping and dealing. And that first year is about coping. And often later on, the emotional impact is what comes to the foreground. And people are surprised. They'll say, oh, I thought I should be better by now. Well, you know, grief doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. It just changes form. And it changes forms for many years to come. I mean, people have said to me, I don't know how you move forward from all of that. But, you know, the intensity lessens. You're able to get on with your life more and more. But, you know, 10 years later, I can be walking down a supermarket aisle and see a box of cereal and start to cry. And so I want to go (laughs) over with you the stages of grief. Can I say something about what you just said before we go on, because I think what you just said is really important, Joan. When you're walking down a supermarket aisle and you see a box of cereal and you melt down, I often hear in my bereavement groups, I thought I was doing so well and I walked down the aisle of the market and I saw the cereal and I lost it. And I say to people, you didn't lose it. You had a moment of grasping the full magnitude of what you've lost. We can't hold it all the time because looking at death is like looking at the sun. We look, we turn away, we look, we turn away. We can't sustain it because our psyche couldn't endure it. So our grief comes in waves. And that particular wave that you just described is called, there's an acronym for it, and it's called STUG, um, Sudden Temporary Upsurge of Grief. 
And it happens when people are grieving, and invariably they turn on themselves and say, I thought I was doing well. Well, it's always temporary, and that's the thing to remember, that when you have a, a temporary upsurge of grief, it doesn't mean you're, you've set yourself back. It means you've just had a moment of fully grasping what you've lost. So I wanted to just pause on that before you went on. But I'm glad you did, because it actually is a perfect segue into the grief model, because it's not linear. The grief model, that's, you know, you can go right. from anger to acceptance to denial, and then right back to a, a different level of it. Those stages were in, originally intended to describe the grief of someone who was dying, and they've been overlaid on the people who are grieving. And while those different stages, apply, some of those stages apply, they don't apply in a linear fashion. We all go through denial, we go through acceptance, we go through anger, we go through integration, but it doesn't happen in any sequence. And some people don't even go into all of those stages. So I think we have to be careful with the stage models because what happens is that people will compare themselves to what they know about the stage model. And then they end up shaming themselves for not grieving properly. I don't know whether you've read this quote or heard this before, but I think this is so beautiful. And I, I wish I had found it before I wrote the book. Um, this is something that a man named Jamie Anderson wrote. Grief, I have learned, is really just love. It's all the love you want to give but cannot. All that unspent love gathers up in the corners of your eyes, the lump in your throat, and in that hollow part of your chest. Grief is just love with no place to go. And I think I love these words because it means that we shouldn't it suggests certainly that we should never suppress our grief because if we suppress our grief, we're suppressing our love. When should a person maybe start to believe that it's time for help? Like how do they know if it's yeah. a natural part of grieving or if maybe there's something a little bit deeper going on? That's a great question. Um, I think that what you're talking about is sort of what is the difference between grief and depression? So if you're not eating, if you're not leaving the house, if you're drinking too much, if you're having thoughts of suicide or joining your loved one somewhere, those are really ominous signs and should be you should seek care for them. The other thing is that with depression, there are no moments of light. It it's a gray lens on your on your view of the world. There there are no breakthroughs of of delight or happiness. With grief, grief comes in waves. It comes and it goes. And while you may not want to leave the house and you may have an extra drink, it it's not that sustained darkness that depression will bring. Can a person get stuck in the grieving process? I think depending on pre-existing conditions, yes, they can. I think if you come into, I mean, actually, there's a lot of reasons you could get stuck. You could get stuck depending on the um, the details around the deaths. For instance, I think a suicide can often leave one stuck when there's been a complicated relationship. Um, traumatic deaths uh, can be sticking points. Um, if you've been predisposed to a mental illness beforehand or you're not a very stable person, I think you can get stuck and need some help. So I, I don't think most people don't get stuck, although I think people often feel they're stuck. But mm -hmm. I think that's more a question of being impatient with the process. But yes, I think you can get stuck. And usually it's because of extraordinary circumstances outside or specific complications of the grief, which I've just mentioned. So what about the pandemic that we've all been experiencing? People are, you know, they've lost the, the way of their life. Maybe they've lost their jobs or they've lost a loved one or they've lost their health because of coronavirus. So how has the pandemic impacted the way we grieve? Well, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, um, uh, David Brooks, a New York Times columnist, wrote a column. He wrote and asked people how they were doing. And within three days, he had 5,000 replies. And what he discovered was, he described at the end of this article, there's a river of grief, a river of woe that's flowing through our culture. And I love his description of a river because water touches everything. Water seeps in where you don't know it. So everybody in the world has suffered some loss 
around uh, coronavirus. One of the problems that's happened, emerged, is that not only do we have losses from COVID, but if you have old losses in your life that you haven't grieved, those losses will get evoked from the losses brought about by COVID. So anything you haven't grieved is probably going to come roaring back and be a little confusing for people because they may say, oh, that my mother died 12 years ago. I don't know why I'm thinking about her now. But that's one of the things that's happened. One of the silver linings of the virus has been that grief is now a word in our mainstream media. It's now in our our daily life. And I love that the nuances of grief have been introduced and that it's being normalized and talked about in a way that it never was before. Claire, normally when a person experiences grief, the, the people around them are usually in a better or a healthier mental state. But when we're all experiencing the losses of a pandemic, should we be cautioned about spending so much time talking about the pain with other people who are talking about their pain? Can we go down a very slippery slope by doing that? I don't know. I think it really depends on the person. I think sharing suffering is really important because it lessens the feeling of being alone. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that's been really important about this is that we are all in this together. And there's been a loneliness of being isolated. But the fact that we're all in this together is also a comfort. So I don't know. Now, Ross, Ross Gay, a poet who's an author who's written a book called The Book of Delights, I read a quote by him the other day, and he said, shared suffering, it was something like this, shared suffering can be a source of delight. And I thought, you know, I see this in my groups, that when people see that other people are living with the same experience they are, it's deeply, deeply comforting. So I guess we just have to be careful not to let it become over-consuming, that that's all we talk about. Yes, because there's a lot of blessings that have emerged from this. We've seen expressions of kindness. We've seen people making personal sacrifices. And I think many of us have reordered our priorities. And I think one of the questions that's really important is to think about what have been the gifts of this time. And as we we're sitting on a threshold now that I think is very important, like we're coming back into life, although there's still certainly a lot of uncertainty, but what of this time of isolation and social distancing and confinement, what about that did we learn about in ourselves that we want to bring forward into a life that's not the same that we had before, but might be richer. Can you share with us a few practices that can help us heal? Yeah, I think, well, you know, actually, it's interesting that you just asked me that, because one of the things to help hold grief would be to have a gratitude practice. And there's a lot of research about the neuroplasticity of our brain. And one of the things that they're learning is that the mind is uh, negative, hardwired to be negatively habituated. We tend to notice what's wrong before we notice what's right. So, for instance, if your viewers or your listeners, I should say, and 99% of them said I did a good job and 1% said I did a bad job, my attention would probably go to the 1% and wonder what they were thinking. So what has happened is that because we are, we are wired to be habituated negatively, but what's happened is that it really skews the way we experience life. So let's just take a typical morning in your home. You get up, maybe you make a cup of coffee, you use the toilet, you brush your teeth, you get dressed and you leave the house. And you don't notice when all of that works fine. But if the coffee maker overflows or the toilet gets clogged up or you have a fender bender on your way to where you're going, you're probably going to get there and say, I had a crappy morning. Mm -hmm. It was really hard, right? You notice it because your expectations were broken. You notice what happened that was wrong. You don't get to work and say, hey, guess what? The toilet flushed, the coffee maker worked, I got here safely. You don't notice that. We notice what's wrong in disproportion. When we have negative experiences, they stick. We may not remember the details, but we remember the impact. Positive experiences flow through us. We don't remember them in the same way. So one of the ways to develop the capacity 
to hold our suffering and our grief with more resilience is to cultivate a gratitude practice. One of the things that I do before I go to bed is I write down three things that were positive that happened that day, three things that I'm grateful for. And what happens is when I'm committed to that practice, I begin to look for what's right the next day because I'm keeping a gratitude journal. Now, when you notice what's right, what's important is to linger with it for 10 to 30 seconds. And what will happen is you begin to rewire the brain to notice not only what's wrong, because we don't want to miss what's wrong, but to begin to notice in the same way what's right. And what that does is it will strengthen our capacity to hold our suffering. And so it's a very important practice. And if you do this for 21 days, there's a ton of research that talks about how you change your happiness level inside. But we're not doing it to change happiness. We're doing it so that we can hold the suffering and the sorrow in our lives with more ease and resilience. You know, Claire, when I went through those challenges, I started doing a gratitude journal at night. And I remember I was going to write down five things every night. And the first night I thought, oh, I'm, I don't have five things to be happy for. And once yeah. I started listing them, it's like a floodgate opens. And that's you think right. you're going to do five and, and you could do 30 very that's easily. Right. And and that's you a know, wonderful practice. One of the things that, I, and I just want to add to that is that when you write the gratitude, it's important that you write the gratitude in positive language. So for instance, let's say you're a young mother with a house full of children. You don't write, I'm grateful that the house wasn't noisy today. That's a negative expression of a positive experience. You write, I'm grateful there was peace in the house today. I'm grateful for the peace in the house. You write a positive with positive language and it goes in deeper. So I'm so glad to hear that you kept a gratitude journal because <laughs> hearing, hearing that it made a difference for you is, is makes it more credible than my just saying it. And to be honest, when I started it, I really didn't know what I was doing. I just did it on my own, but it really yeah, it, did have it, a positive experience. It's the one thing that you can do that on a basis of research has shown that people get ha- live happier lives. But I think more to the point with grief is that it helps us hold our grief more effectively. The book is Opening to Grief, Finding Your Way from Loss to Peace. If you'd like to get more information about Claire and her work, you can visit openingtogrief.com. Claire, thank you so much for joining us. It has really been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me, Joan. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you feel lost on your journey to health and happiness? Then let us guide you on your path, personalized actions towards health. Your path is a series of choices you act on every day. We guide you on a personalized journey of dietary, exercise, genetic, supplement, and lifestyle choices that lead you to optimal health and happiness. Often taking the road less traveled leads to liberation. Your path is personal. Your journey, like you, is unique. Take action today. Head to bestpathforme.com. Again, that's bestpathforme.com. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. Katherine Johnson was an American mathematician who was one of NASA's human computers and an unsung hero of the space agency's early days. Her calculations of orbital mechanics were critical to the first and subsequent U.S. crewed space flights. Catherine was among the women profiled in the book and movie Hidden Figures. Today, her daughter Catherine Moore joins us to discuss her mother's achievements that broke down gender and racial barriers so that her daughters and millions of other young women could reach for the stars as she did. Welcome, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So, Catherine, when did your mother's family realize that she was a gifted mathematician? Uh, Well, actually, it was before I came along. Mm -hmm. She was a little girl, the youngest of four. Her brothers and sister were both, all three, in school, and she was home. So they looked around and saw her walking up the street, and they said, where are you going? She says, I'm going to school to help my brothers 
they are having trouble with their math, and I think I can help them. She was four. <laughs> and uh, so the teacher said, went to see my, my grandmother and said, uh, I think I need to start a, a school this summer for the daughters and the young kids because your daughter is ready. So she started school at four, and they skipped her and skipped her until she finished high school at 14. How did she get her job at NASA, and what was it like for her to navigate the world of the 50s and 60s? Well, it started very simply. uh, She went to the wedding of my aunt, my dad's sister, in Newport News, Virginia. And my uncle, who had, he and my aunt had lived there for a while, and they said, well, NASA just started hiring NACA at the time, and they see just started hiring black mathematicians at the time it was colored or Negro. And uh, she said, you're kidding. Okay, we're on vacation. We'll go. So she went. They got her an interview. And the, of course, she maxed the exam. And they said, oh, but we're sorry. We've got our quota for this year. Go find a job and uh, we'll, we'll try again next year. So she went to the, one of the black high schools, got a job teaching math, and went back the next year. And, of course, they hired her. I don't think she even gave it a thought that she would not get hired if she applied. There were other black mathematicians there because black colleges were visited and they needed black mathematicians because the federal government had started saying uh, government funds for NASA programs, you must have representation, et cetera, et cetera. And so they made a pointed effort to find some black mathematicians. And she was in that lucky number. They already had some there, but she got in at at the right time, in the right place, and did the right thing. What was it like for her navigating her career during that time? Number one, it was the 50s and the 60s, and second, it was a a male-dominated industry. So what was that like for your mother, a woman? You know, my mother was the type. She never, ever complained when she came home. What she said was, I love my job. She learned to work with the men. She didn't feel intimidated by them, nor uh, a second-class citizen because they respected her because she had the answers they needed. She was able to be part of a team. She believed in that. She liked working, and she would say, I didn't do this by myself. But yet, when it came down to those figures, that was her work. You know, my work is around the premise of change your attitude, change your life. And your mother exemplified having a positive attitude and the right outlook. And and look what it was able to do for her life. There's there's a great line in the movie Hidden Figures in which your mother states that she and the other women achieved so much, not because they wore skirts, but because they wore glasses. So... What would your mother say to women today and to all the little girls who wear glasses? You can do anything you want to do. You just must prepare yourself. Do the work. You know, you don't just walk into a job. You must be prepared for that job. And uh, she was curious from the time she was little. She said, she said, well, why? Well, what happens if? Mm Mm-hmm. And she would, you know, she said she was counting from the time she was doing dishes. Well, why are there only four plates, but there are five forks? You know, things had to make sense. She said, because math is either right or it's wrong. Did your mother pass that on to you, Catherine? Did your mother pass on that curiosity and that positive attitude? I think she did, uh, just as the grandparents passed it on to her. We were never, um, you know, math was just part of what we did. Math was fun from the very beginning. We worked puzzles. We we added numbers. We added license plate numbers. Uh, we played hopscotch. We played dominoes. The card faces, you had to tell whether it was more or less than or do they match. Those are the ways you introduce kids to numbers without making them fearful of it being hard. Catherine, in our final moments, what do you believe your mother's legacy is? What impact has she had on the world? My mother's legacy would be you have to just be and do and excel at whatever it is you attempt to do. You have to believe in yourself. You have to be curious. You have to be honorable and just be able to get along with people. 
she enjoyed her life. She would tell you in a heartbeat, she loved her work. She said, I didn't work a day in my life. I enjoyed what I did. And I think that's such an important legacy, and, and it's a great place to leave this conversation. It's that your mother enjoyed her life, and I think so many of us are caught up in this rat race of life, and we're doing things that don't give us any pleasure, and it's just such a beautiful message to enjoy your life. It's simple. Yes. We had fun doing the things we did, even though we were limited at times, and now the sky is the limit. That's what she meant by one step thought. You can go as far as you can take yourself with help and with work and perseverance. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City. back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. It's estimated that more than 6 million cats and dogs enter U.S. shelters every year. That's a staggering statistic that according to our next guest, Lisa Lange, isn't likely to change until we can stop the flood of unwanted cats and dogs. Lisa is the Senior Vice President of Communications for People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. She is here today to talk about the overpopulation crisis and to share steps that can be taken to improve the quality of life for animals. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on. So, Lisa, can you explain to our listeners why there are so many dogs and cats in shelters? Yeah, there, you know, there are a number of reasons. The, the, the number one reason is that they're still breeding. So sometimes cats, for example, are the, are the worst off. Um, it's a lot of accidental breeding. Uh, outdoor cats will have litter after litter after litter if they're not spayed or neutered. Um, some people intentionally breed their dogs and cats. And then there's, of course, all the puppy mills and the pet stores. It's also important to note that shelters have animals uh, who were relinquished by people. So sometimes people will uh, purchase a dog, for example, or a cat on impulse and then realize, oh, shoot, this costs a lot of money. It takes time that I don't have. And that's why you see a lot of two-year-olds, four-year-olds, six-year-old dogs and cats in the shelters. And there is nothing sadder than seeing an animal who's lived in a home for several years and then has been given up. So for all these reasons, uh, we... We advocate that every animal be fixed, uh, spayed or neutered. It's very easy to do, that no one ever please purchase an animal from a pet store or breeder. And that also, please understand that before you get a cat or dog, understand that it is a responsibility that does take time and does take money, but it is so worth it. So if someone was looking for a pet, what would be the process that that person needs to complete? Yeah, I mean, if you, you realize that you have the time and the resources for bringing a cat or a dog into your life, what we would recommend is, you know, look at your lifestyle. If you um, don't particularly like to be outside too much or go, you know, get a lot of exercise, but you do want to get a companion dog, um, you may want to get an older dog, you know, someone who doesn't need to run. There are various uh, mixed breeds and breeds at shelters who need a lot of exercise and those who prefer to be couch potatoes. So understanding that and talking to your local shelter about the various animals they have is the way to go visit your local shelter after you've kind of looked online to see who they have there. Um, and then, you know, go and talk to the people who work at the local shelter. Tell them what your life is like and, and, and if you want to adopt a cat, um, we advocate you consider getting two so that they have a companion when you're off running errands or going into work. Um, you know, so just really kind of look at your own lifestyle and and proceed accordingly. But always adopt and never buy. We adopted our family pet. Ginger had been fostered for the first four years of her life. And from what we were told, she was created mostly for those four years. And when we got her, mm. she was actually the most loving animal that I could have ever imagined. And, and I like to say that we saved her, but she saved us as well. Yeah, you know, that, and that is so wonderful. And crating is just so difficult for animals because, you know, it goes against, <laughs> we all have a desire for freedom of movement. And when we put animals in a cage, it, it just uh, contributes to all kinds of behavior issues. Our dogs, 
Uh, we don't know exactly what her history was, but she certainly behaves like someone who was confined for years, things she didn't know how to do, like take a walk on a leash. She didn't know how to use stairs. She didn't know how to jump up or, or maybe had been punished for jumping up on a couch at some point in, in her life. We need to remember that these animals, you know, they have, they love and they want your attention and they have psychological issues when they're abused like like this, when they're confined for their lives. And they all need loving, caring homes. But there are just too many of them, you know, right now and not enough good homes. So um, it's just so lovely to see when someone will go into a shelter and be up for adopting, for example, an 11-year-old cat because this animal probably knew a home of sorts. And then it was taken away from them. So to provide a loving home for these animals is key. What happens to a pet that does not get adopted? And what is the usual time span that uh, an animal can stay in a shelter? Oh, gosh, you know, it, it absolutely varies shelter to shelter, depending on the number of animals who come in. So when you see, a, you know, in, in some of your larger cities, where, for example, there may not be a good spay-neuter ordinance um, or there's a spay-neuter ordinance that is not being enforced and so animals are breeding out of control, you're going to see um, <clears throat> more animals euthanized in these shelters because there just simply aren't enough good homes for them. Um, you know, we don't like seeing animals keep, uh, I'm sorry, shelters keep animals for years and years and years because it just does such tremendous psychological damage uh, for these animals, cats and dogs. Um, and that's why, you know, animals are literally dying every single day because we are allowing them to breed. Um, and the fix is so simple by simply always adopting, never buying, and always making sure to spay and neuter animals. We can do away with this problem so, so quickly. But it's up to each city to pass strong spay-neuter ordinances and enforce them. And what's more, people who allow their animals to breed or who purposefully breed, they need to be fined for that. Um, and because when you make it hurt a little bit, when you make it literally cost people, um, then they start to to behave differently. And, you know, animals are paying with their lives. So it's important that, um, you know, we start to find people who who are contributing to this overpopulation crisis. Lisa, how else can our listeners get involved? And are there any good resources that you recommend? Yeah, I mean, in every city, uh, go to your local Humane Society or Animal Control and see what they need, see what contributions, what volunteers they need. In your own neighborhood, if you know that there's someone who has an animal that should be spayed or neutered, talk to that person. Maybe even volunteer to take the animal to the vet. Help them find low-cost spay-neuter. Consider subsidizing that spay or neuter surgery yourself. Also, talk to your council members. This is where change happens on a local level. Make sure you have a spay-neuter ordinance in the town that you live in. Make sure that you have a licensing differential on the books. It's an ordinance that says that if you neuter your dog, you spay or neuter your dog, your license can cost $2, whereas if you don't, it should cost hundreds of dollars. If animals are paying with their lives, the very least, people who are causing the problem can do is make it come out of their pocketbook. So there are tons of things that you can do on a local level that make significant differences for the animals in your community. And is there a good resource? Well, you can always go to PETA.org for more information, but I think locally, um, just going to your local animal control or your Humane Society's website and see what's going on there. Get involved locally. That's where it counts. Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back. How do music-evoked emotions mitigate the stress response? Hi, I'm Allison Ayati. I'm a musician, sound practitioner, and the creator of The Sound Life, an app for relaxation and meditation through sound and music. There's a structure in your brain called the hippocampus. A number of studies on music-evoked emotions show significant changes in the hippocampal region. Changes in the hippocampus correlate to positive and negative music-evoked emotions, including tenderness, peacefulness, joy, sadness, and physical sensations such as chills and tingling. Evidence suggests that the hippocampus is significantly involved in emotional processing due to its involvement with the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, which is the main regulator.
regulator of stress hormones. It has been demonstrated that music evoked joy produces a functional connection between the hippocampus and the hypothalamus and supports the theory that positive music evoked emotions reduce the production of stress related hormones. Chronic stress induces chemical processes that can have a profound effect on your well being. Sound and music that induce a relaxation response can reverse those processes for a healthier, happier life. To learn more about sound healing and sound meditation, go to livingthesoundlife.com. Sound meditation is not a replacement for medical or psychological intervention. You've put your heart and soul into writing a book. So, how do you reach your potential readers? Introducing the Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life book club, created for books that change lives. A book featured gets recognized. For more information, visit cyacyl.com slash book club. Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. Joining us for this week's To Your Health is Dr. John Varbro, the Chief Medical Officer at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center. Dr. Varbro is also an Assistant Professor at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and the Chief Medical Advisor to Bergen County in New Jersey, acting as Medical Director for all county public health programs. Welcome, Dr. Varbro. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. So, Doctor, lately, it seems like all we're hearing about is monkeypox. So, is monkeypox something we should be concerned about it? And what is it? Sure. You know, uh, should we be concerned about it? You should always be concerned if there's a new uh, disease that's been classified as a new pandemic. You know, over the last couple of years, pandemic has gotten a certain connotation in people's heads. So, you know, this is a very different pandemic from COVID. What is monkeypox? Monkeypox is a virus. Uh, It's a relative of smallpox, um, but it's not smallpox. And it's existed for a very long time. It's been uh, described for several decades. Traditionally, it's a virus that's usually passed from animals to humans and humans back to animals. And that's typically been how it's been passed in the past. So it's usually been in people who are animal handlers or or things of that nature. Um, But it's recently switched so that it it can transfer directly from human to human. And that's what the difference is that's going on with it. And in particular, it's currently mostly in uh, the population of men who have sex with men, although there have been cases outside of that population. Why do you think we're seeing more cases now? What's happening? Uh, I think that it, it mutated, just like we saw these last couple of years with COVID, where it would mutate and you'd get a new variant that was more contagious or, or things like that, you know, uh, like Omicron and before that Delta. Uh, with this, monkeypox mutated so that it no longer needs the animal host in between. There's a lot of viruses that are like that are infectious diseases where it, it can't go directly from a person to a person. You know, there's usually some, they call it an animal vector in between. And monkeypox is not just with monkeys. There's actually many animals that it, it goes into and, and back and forth to humans. Um, what happened was the virus mutated so that it could transfer from human to human. And so that's the difference. And now that it's in the direct human population, it can spread more easily. That being said, um, because it's been around, we have, we're in a, a very different situation than we were when COVID started, where COVID was a brand new virus. This is a virus that has been around. Granted, it's a variant, um, but we have a pretty good idea of what to do with it. Do you think this is something that we'll be seeing more and more in our future because of the way we live with all the travel we do and just the way the world is getting so small? Do you think we're going to see virus after virus now? I wouldn't be surprised. Um, you know, like you said, we the world is very changed. We live in a much more international world now, so it's definitely possible. And, you know, there's more and more uh, things where people are going into nature more and, and disrupting nature. And so the, there's more opportunity for for viruses that are in other species to transfer into humans. What are the things that we should be looking out for? How does it present? What are the signs and symptoms? So monkeypox presents uh, typically with a, a rash. Um, it's, you know, the, the classic pockmark rash. Chicken pox looks like it, but it's not chicken pox. And it, it's actually more of a, like, little pus-filled um, bumps or nodules. So that's what smallpox used to look like. There was another virus way back when called cowpox, had a similar presentation. 
the the thing with monkeypox is it's it's very variable how people present with it. There's some people who have um, just a simple rash. There's some people who have significant pain with it. And that that's really where it's it's uh, unpleasant for the patients who get uh, the significant pain with with the infection. Um, it's generally by direct contact, so it's you know prolonged skin to skin contact, or technically the the virus can live in in the pus or onto hard surfaces, which is why you know we're telling people to make sure you're laundering sheets well and that kind of stuff if you're in some place like uh, where you could potentially come in, in contact with with uh, laundry that other people have used, things like that. But it's generally direct skin to skin contact for a prolonged period of time. So monkeypox does not, at least in the current iteration, um, does not transfer very easily. To, to give an idea, you know, again, because people know COVID as a baseline, it's easier to use. But for each patient who knew had COVID at the beginning of COVID, you know, they would infect somewhere from two to three extra, you know, other people. Right now with monkeypox, that number is about 1.2 to 1.3. So it's more than one, which means it's spreading. You know, you'd like it to be less than one. That's when it it, it uh, narrows down and, and and dies off. But it's not astronomically high. That being said, anything over one can potentially spread more. And so, what is the incubation period? And let's say you are exposed, are you contagious before you see those blisters? So it's a good question. It's not entirely answered. Um, you know, we think that it's it's again mostly from having the the lesions and it being able to spread through that, but because it's a new iteration, we're not 100% sure. There's also some uh, question of whether uh, monkeypox is spread in certain uh, human bodily fluids, semen uh, being one where there's some question about it, so somebody might be able to spread it um, without them having the uh, skin lesions yet uh, through, through that method. Um, so there are some other ways it could potentially spread, but it, it does seem to be direct contact with the rash scabs or bodily fluids. Okay, so with what we don't know, how can we best protect ourselves? I think the, there's a couple of main things. Um, first of all, if you're in a high-risk population, there is a vaccine for it. So people who are in a high-risk population should get vaccinated. Um, if you are not in a high-risk population, you should just be careful of what you come in contact with. Um, use good cleansing. Any hard surfaces that you're coming in contact with, uh, make sure that they're cleaned. You don't need to do uh, hygiene theater, you know, but... Uh, but just good basic hygiene should help with that. And then, again, being uh, cognizant of people who you're in prolonged contact with, obviously. Um, but, uh, but it is actually something that, that should be, uh, if we're aggressive enough and stay ahead of it, should be able to get under control a lot easier than we did with COVID. Obviously, we need to be aggressive, particularly in getting treatments to people in higher-risk populations. Coming back to that uh, replication number, that 1.2 to 1.3, if we can get the vaccine into enough people and and get uh, information to people, again, in higher-risk groups so that they uh, recognize the infection sooner so that they can isolate from, from touching other people or other things quickly, uh, we should be able to get it under control. Is the vaccine for monkeypox a specific monkeypox vaccine? Because I've heard a lot about people who were vaccinated for smallpox as children yeah. that we have protection. So is that true? Yes. Yeah, so monkeypox and smallpox are relatives. And so the vaccines that we have for it um, do cross over. So the traditional smallpox vaccine, where there's multiple shots and it leaves kind of a scar on your arm. And I'm old enough. I'm, I'm one of the last people I think who had mm -hmm. uh, a smallpox vaccination. They weren't doing it for all people my age, but uh, my parents took me overseas when I was younger. So I have the scar on, on my arm. Uh, so for people who've, who've had that, um, that's the the more direct vaccination. The, the problem with that vaccine is that um, it's not good for people who have an immune compromise or other or, or some other medical conditions, certain skin conditions and so forth. Um, so there's another vaccine uh, called Genios, which was also developed for both smallpox, but has some crossover with monkeypox, uh, traditionally been about 85 percent effective. It was actually developed post 9-11 because, if you remember, there was fear of a biological weapon attack uh, during that time frame with smallpox. And so uh, other vaccines were developed for the populations who couldn't take the, 
the more traditional uh, vaccine. So there should theoretically be some coverage. Now, you know, uh, I was probably vaccinated about 46 years ago, 45 years ago. So like with all immunity, immunity does fade over time. But theoretically, like you would have some protection from having been vaccinated uh, way back when. And so if we start to experience any of the symptoms you described, is there a test? Do we go to the doctor? What do we do about it then? So, yeah, you should present to the doctor. There are medications that can be used to treat if you have a particularly bad case. But really the biggest thing that people need to do if they do have a case is to uh, isolate or, and keep covered up. Um, you know, they can take some time for the lesions to heal. And as long as they're still there, uh, it's spreadable. So it's, it's, you know, the other issue would be if you have any other symptoms. You know, it, we're particularly worried about people who get it, who have immune disorders, because those are the ones who could have really bad side effects. Aside from the pain, that's where it can progress and be more, more scary. Um, so for those patients, they should definitely reach out to a physician. Um, like I said, there are medications that are difficult to get because uh, they were developed, again, for smallpox. So uh, for monkeypox, they, they appear to be very effective, but they're not as available due to regulatory rules and, and so forth, So, which is a little frustrating. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, hopefully that will get cleared up soon. And, Doctor, finally, the last question can pets get and pass on monkeypox? Is this something we have to worry about with our dogs and cats? So that, that's a great question. There's some there's some thought that they might be able to, as I said, that the, that monkeypox can spread to certain animals. So it really depends on the on the type of pet and what the animal is. There's a whole list of different animals who've been described as having uh, monkeypox. Um, you know, uh, in particular mammals, uh, which are like dogs and cats theoretically could have, um, could get monkeypox or an animal version of it. So if you're, if you do have a pet and they potentially uh, start showing symptoms, you should probably contact your veterinarian right away. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to get more information about Newbridge, you can visit newbridgehealth.org. joining us, I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Maximilian Communications. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.